שיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. Welcome to another edition of Parsha Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Mohamed in Highland Park, New Jersey. Joining me as always, our good friends, Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky, Anjay Chesed, New York City, Rabbi Barry Chesler, Solomon Schechter of Long Island in Long Island. And it's great to see you, and we're looking forward to a great Shabbat. Before we begin, we want to thank all of our correspondents. We had a lot of email this week on our Brayshit uh, podcast, our Brayshit uh, show. You can write to us at parshatalk at gmail.com. That's parshatalk, P-A-R-S-H-A, talk at gmail.com. And we hope to get back to you. I still owe people emails. I was away this week a couple of days, so I didn't get a chance to write, but I promise I will write back as well. Well, we are starting Parsha Noah, second Parsha of the Book of Reshit. We reached this moment at the end of last week's Parsha where, where God needs comfort. Well, no, not God needs comfort. God regrets having made human beings. And they named Noah in a play on words, and now we have Noah this week. So I just, for, for those of us just need a refresher, Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky, give us a refresher of the story of Noah in 30 seconds. Go ahead. 20, 28 seconds. God has given up on these rotten people. The world is filled with violence, and Hamas has a, it, it's a, fun, a funny and odd co- coincidence that in our modern world, we think of some other terrible name, Hamas, the, the terrorist organization, but in the biblical Hebrew, it means exploitation and robbery. The world is, is just a cruel place. God gives up on this place and goes for a new creation, gives the world, so to speak, a gigantic bath. The Arubot HaShamayim and the Mayanot HaTehom the, the, the hev- windows of heaven wake uh, uh, open up and the fountains of the deep explode and the world is washed away. And Noah and his family, three children, three Shem Vecham V'yefet and each of their wives and Noah's wife. Interestingly enough, despite the fact that the Bible is a polygamous society, they're each given one mate, right? And so it seems like there's a basic monogamy ideal beneath the polygamy. Well, so were the animals given one mate. Each of the animals is also given one mate, two by two or seven by seven. Um, so Noah and Naama also happens to be the name of somebody's daughter. Elliot's <laughs> daughter. Um, she's she's the midrashically named Mrs. Noah and their children. They get on the ark and they are saved through 40 days and 40 nights of flooding. The uh, ark comes to rest in the mountains of Armenia, Mount Ararat. And Noah and his children are, are sent forth from the ark to refill up the world, and they do refill up the world, but there's some mishaps along the way, including Noah's drunkenness and, and the bad behavior of Ham, one of the three children, which results in a curse. But uh, this is the story of, as it were, a second creation from a uh, beginning with a, a kind of second Adam, but he's a very interesting and flawed one, and we'll discuss yeah. whether he seems to, to us heroic or less than. Barry, you want to add to that a little bit? Any 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 facets of the story that you want to focus on? 
No, I think Jeremy covered the basics very well, as he always does. You know, the question really is, how do we evaluate Noah? So the theme of Noah, the, it's the undoing of creation, basically. The, all of the water up above and the water below, the sluices of heaven and earth, it's the heaven, heavenly waters come down, the waters beneath pop up, and everything gets washed out. I like to point out also the fact that the, the, the ark, which is not the shape that we see in children's nurseries, but more like a box, a long box with a ratio of 50 cubits wide to 300 cubits long. It's uh, six to one. And that has the dimensions that it seems, in my opinion, a dimension relationship of, of, uh, of a human coffin. And so when you look at the box in that way, you are looking at death and a kind of movement from the world that is dying to the world that will be restored. And we mentioned before we were talking about the, the presence of the Tsohar, which is the window. And that is the thing that is going to give the inhabitants of the Ark hope, which is also, I think, a symbol about hope after death. So Barry's going to go on about evaluating Noah. I just want to say about the, the coffin motif. First of all, the same word, Teva, is the, the basket that Moses is also carried in. Indeed. So... Noah and Moses are carried to life in a teva through water. But in, in classical Hebrew also, Aaron is both the box that you keep the Ten Commandments in and the box sure. you put a body in. So the, the, the double valence of coffins and boxes is very, very rich in Judaism. And anybody who likes American literature knows also that uh, in the end of Moby Dick, uh, Ishmael is saved by a floating coffin. And he is early in that book. Uh, he he asks a person named Coffin to save. He says, "Coffin, save me!" And so there you go. There. A little no. bit of American classic literature added to the Parsha talk. Barry, let's talk about Noah now. Okay, before we get there, I just wanted to add one thing: that um, God does not start over. It, with the rabbis have the world created a few times. I think we're the third world. But God does not start over either with the creation of the world itself or with man. He, you might have thought at the end of last Parsha that God would wipe the slate clean and start all over again. And I think that it speaks of something fundamental in our human understanding of ourselves. There is an element of tragedy, of imperfection that is with us from the very beginning that we can't escape, even though throughout much of our lives, I dare say, many of us try to, right? The whole arc of religion is to try to free ourselves from sin, and we're never completely successful. And that's embedded in this Noah story, and perhaps allows us to segue into the comment on the first verse, Ish Sadiq Tamim Hayabidoratov, et Elohim Hitalech. Noah, that um, Noah was a righteous person in his generation. And for the rabbis, that means one of two things. Either he is the most righteous person ever, that he lived in the generation plagued by sin, and he was able to rise above it. Or in his generation filled with sin, you, you don't have to be that great to stand out. The image that's given by Rashi is that in a world 
of the blind, a one-eyed person sees far. And I think, you know, for me, Noah gets a bad rap. I think that we underestimate his greatness because he has nothing to fall back upon. He is the first person born, at least mentioned by name, who's born after Adam. The curse was supposed to lift. And um, he looks around at the world and sees nothing, I think we, it's fair to say, but bad. And yet he finds it within him the strength to prevail in that generation. So let, let, let me focus on the exact text, at least that's in the Talmud. It's Rabbi, a debate between Rabbi Yochanan and Resh Lakish, two um, uh, frenemies. Well, they're, they're, they're debating partners, uh, Rabbi Yochanan, the master, Resh Lakish, the student calling. Betorotav, uh, says Rabbi Yochanan, that means in his generation, but not in other generations. That is to say, had Noah lived in the generation classically of Abraham or Moses, Noah would have been an ordinary person. Rish Lakish, a colorful character, says in his generation, all the more so in, uh, in other generations. So Barry, you're taking the, the, uh, the position of Rish Lakish here. You're saying that, that there's something about Noah's greatness that transcends his own generation that had Noah lived in the generation of Abraham, Moses, or others, uh, he would still be regarded very much as a righteous person. Okay. You know, on that point, if, if I can buttress the Reish Lakish position, and, and the, uh, I, th I think Reish Lakish might have gotten it from Barry Chester, but the... Uh, the <laughs> I often think so. <laughs> <laughs> but Maimonides in Hilchot Deot, um, which is sort of his, his description of human virtue, says, says that people are always influenced by everybody who's near them. People are always influenced by local custom and, you know, the... The, the kind of society that you grow up in. So therefore you really should move from bad people and you should not have friendships with and you should not associate with bad people and you should go out of your way to associate with good people. And if everybody in your locale is, um, you know, terrible morals, then you should move. And that is both a guidance to people in his, his era about how to live, but it's certainly a, a description of how it is that is true in human life that we are always gonna be affected by others. And so therefore, if you live in a society that is so full of cruelty and rapaciousness and greed and exploited, you know, exploitative impulses and stuff, and, and you uh, actually do exemplify something better, on the one hand, your behavior might not on absolute standards be so amazing, but think of what you've had to overcome. You've got these weights on your ankles of everything, of all the negative influences on society. So the argument for Noah is to say to be great in a place of cruelty is, is an amazing achievement. And to be great among tzaddikim, you know, like you've got a little bit of a, of a, of a boost by the other tzaddikim. So, so let me for once uh, take the side of Rabbi Yochanan here and be a little critical about, about Noah. That this is Noah, by the way. This is <laughs> that uh, I usually like Reish Lakish's opinion. But... Um, so Rav Yochanan is saying that look, he 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 doesn't he doesn't transcend in greatness, and and we could we could muster a bunch of arguments that that says that Noah Noah doesn't make it doesn't make the great. First of all, when God says to make the ark, he and and God says I'm I'm going to destroy the world. Kitzba, you know this this the world is coming to an end. 
So Noah, Noah has his own interests at heart in making the ark. He, he does exactly what God says, unlike Abraham, who will uh, argue with God about the destruction of Sodom and Amorah. And Noah goes and acquiesces to everything that God says. And Noah is not a social creature. Uh, Noah is a very solitary creature. And yet in that generation, he, he uh, has uh, an exemplary status. And then of course, you know, the, the arguments at the end, and, and again, here it's probably too critical to, to say that Noah is not a tzaddik for all time because of his drunkenness. We will have to look at that carefully. But um, there, there is a criticism to be made about Noah for, for not reaching out, not trying to change God, not trying to argue with God. Or but Abraham is unsuccessful. And I think the point of that story, which I assume we'll talk about next week or in two weeks, is that God doesn't change his mind. God does exactly what he sets out to do. And Abraham's intervention is to teach Abraham a lesson, not to teach God something. So I think he gets a little too much credit for his argument with God. Um, But I think, you know, listening to the two of you speak, what is so important here, I think, is that context is so important. And it's how we contextualize Noah that will determine what we think. If we think about him in his generation, he's truly a great man. Even if he's only a step above, no one else got there. And if we want to think in more universal terms, and perhaps Abraham seems to be greater, but you know, as I was saying before the show, there's an element of provincialness in the rabbi's approach in some ways, because the first Jew has to be the best guy. Because if Noah was really the best guy, then you know it would be Noahism, or some version of that, I suppose, rather than Judaism as the descendants of Abraham. So maybe that's why Rish Lakish is very, very um, sympathetic to Noah. No, maybe he's saying there is a universalism. There is something that we all need to aspire to here. You know, we, we do, by the way, of course, have um, uh, something called Noah, Noahism, right? And it's the general thing, the Noahide laws, or in, in one version, the, the Adamic laws, like uh, there's a basic human morality that that is, you know, of, of seven, what are taken to be seven. Um, w- w- some some people have said, you know, natural law kinds of commands. This is just the basics of any kind of humanity. And and Judaism is a refinement and further aspiration on top of that. But we, we do actually think that Noah bequeathed from a totally lawless world, um, that Noah received uh, his own set of commandments about how to be human beings. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm stuck on this, this argument of greatness. I'm stuck on it... Um, because it's part of it's part of the conversation that we all have in every single discipline. It's a conversation that we have in uh, philosophy. It's a conversation that we have in music. It's the conversation we have in in sports. I mean, we have a good debate here as to what constitutes greatness um, in basketball. I mean, you, you guys are going to have to help me out here. So, who are <laughs> your, nominees, your nominees? Because I can give you: Is it Gretzky versus Orr? Okay. So there's something that is transcendent about the greatness of Wayne Gretzky, but there's also something that's transcendent about the greatness of Bobby Orr. Had Bobby Orr played in the generation of Gretzky, 
<laughs> would he be great? And that, I mean, these are, you know, to us, these are really. So I think, you know, what's interesting is what someone who comes afterwards thinks, right? You grew up at the tail end of Bobby Orr's career. So I assume that he's the greatest for you. Well, Am I right? I grew up right smack in the middle of Bobby Orr's career. Oh, so all right. And, and I thought you we were, were measuring Bobby Orr against John Beliveau and, 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 and other people, Gordy Howe, and, you know, Gretzky. Bobby Hall. Bobby Hall. These were these were like the pantheon of, of hockey. Right. But he was a defenseman. He was. A, that's what made him great. And he could skate better. And he, he changed the game. So th- this is I mean, in, in, in the world of basketball, that may be more relevant to many of our listeners. So who, <laughs> there's Michael Jordan, who has a film. They made a whole series about him. Right. And who comes close? LeBron James. Who changed the game? Will Chamberlain, but this this is the fun conversation, of course, about great about, you know, and I my my boys know a lot more about basketball than I do, but I love to fight with them, and they say obviously it's LeBron, and I just insist, no, no, it's Michael Jordan because it's that's that's my that's my proper age, but mostly I just have fun tweaking them, but uh, I, I do think it's fun because we we do like to sort of rank people and and make judgments among people and like. Uh, the, somebody said, uh, I think it was Alfred North Whitehead said, "Western philosophy is just a series of footnotes on Plato." Like Plato was it? Plato was the whole thing, and it's just footnotes on Plato since then. Um, and you know, I, I I do think we we have fun with these. Who, who's the greatest rabbi, Rabbi Akiva, or, or you know? Well, who's the greatest rabbi? president? And we were talking also. You know, this 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 is a constant conversation. You know, I I, I say. Abraham Lincoln is universally regarded as the greatest president. I mean, that's that is a debatable proposition, I guess. And Barry, your your retort to that is yeah, because well, he saved the nation. Oh, because he was assassinated. That's what Alan Nevis says at the end of his history of the Civil War. But I think also, you know, again, here the context is important. One question to ask is: in the midst of the Civil War, would have any other person that you could have imagined been president? Has have done as well as Lincoln did, and when you Lincoln, look at the people, who, Lincoln almost voted out of office in 1864. He was expected to right. Lose. Well, there were four to people general, running. It was who to a general, McClellan, who Lincoln had fired because he was not a serious. He was not aggressive enough as a fighter. Uh, right. I, I think that the, that the comment that you made or Nevins made about you know his assassination sealed his greatness because he didn't have to go on and live through the failures of the next, all the other stuff, and he didn't have to ne- negotiate reconstruction and everything, uh, I think is very is very true. People, the sainted dead are the uh, are the best, but Lincoln obviously did um, lead the country through the, the most terrible uh, crisis. Now, in in Ken Burns's um, Civil War, you know, na- na- narrated by uh, Shelby Foote, um, Another, yeah. wonderful, wonderful Southern, Southern. narrator, David Southern narrator. Yeah. Um, and he's, he relates, first of all, these things are really interesting now because we're so much more attuned to the casual way, I think, that, that, that slavery is, was talked about and not, not given the full due of its attention, but, uh, and the sort of romanticization of the Confederacy, but uh, the narrator speaks to a descendant of Nathan Bedford Forrest, and he says, you know, in my opinion, there were two geniuses in the Civil War, Lincoln and Nathan Bedford Forrest, and the, and the descendant says, 
my family don't think too much of Mr. Lincoln. <laughs> so there are people in this country, even into the 1980s, yes, yeah. that actually, mind-blowing though this is, there are people actually in the 1980s who didn't think that much of Mr. Lincoln. Like, wow, what what could this possibly be? Well, there you have it. So there's there there's a Rav Yochanan and Rish Lakish on debating, you know, the transcendent qualities of, of Lincoln's greatness. You know that that had Lincoln lived in a you know time such as ours, you know Lincoln, and look, it's a whole you know this is where it gets off the rails. This this kind of you know debate, you know what would constitute greatness now, and and does America even want greatness? Right, but what informs the discussion, I think, when we talk about the presidents, is that they're often ranked by the degree of crisis that confronted them. And let's face it, not all of them had the same level of crises. And therefore, some people just never got to measure up. They might have been really great presidents, but they weren't really tested in the same way that Lincoln was tested with the Civil War. And that was a tremendous test. Lincoln and Franklin Roosevelt had the greatest test. And and I think almost almost everybody, the the, you know, revanchist uh, Confederates notwithstanding, almost everybody would say that Lincoln and Franklin Roosevelt were and George Washington were like the, the most unique because they faced these unbelievable and great challenges. I, I want to return to something that Barry said earlier, which which I think is really, uh, you know, bears emphasis, is that everything is contextual, and that's why even though I I, I do agree with with Elliot's observation about the the sort of weakness of of Noah, the world's going to be destroyed. Okay, let me save myself. That's that's very jarring and 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 not morally uh inspiring but i i think that it's very i, I want to reaffirm that position that barry took before which i which i also was pointed towards which is that um it is in your society and the faces the challenges that you face in an immediate way that that mark your greatness so I, you elliot's been using the term transcendent i, I would even say that it's if, if transcend means like despite the situation i would differ and say no, no, it's in the situation that greatness is discovered because it's the tremendous challenges of living right where you live, right when you live it, and having to and having to uh, negotiate those. So just to recapitulate then, what made Noah great? What made Noah great? So I, I would say that... Righteous. In... In a world, he made the world up. safe for Abraham. Huh? He made the world safe for Abraham. Zei nachamenu mimaasenu umeitzvon yadinu. Yeah. This he will comfort us from our bad deeds and our heartbreaking behavior. And I would say that there was something heartbreaking about the world, and that though. I want him to have this Abrahamic moment and I want him to go up and down warning everybody like Jonah and saying, you know, owed 40 days and Nineveh is turned upside down. Uh, I am, I, I think the greatness is that God saw in, in him an ability to negotiate the crisis and have some act of care and rescue, care and rescue. Oh, because maybe, maybe. Let's just think about the enormous effort, forget the building of the ark, which is talking a thing, but, the enormous care given to the animals and and to be have a new beginning 
et ha'elohim hitalech noach, maybe it's, it's really that much, which is that here's a person in a generation of lawlessness and tyranny and corruption who, who is with God. So it's interesting that you mentioned that because if we look back a little bit to last week, Hanoch also is described as someone who walked with God and he was no more. But Noah walks with God and is able to continue. And I think that ability to pick yourself up and keep going is something we can and should applaud. Well, let's let's move on into the middle of the parsha because because the 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 flood comes, the you know, entire entire life, every species is wiped out except for that which is on the ark. And uh, Noah sends out the, the, the ravens and finally will send out the dove. The dove comes back with uh, the olive branches. And it's at that point that God says to Noah, uh, teva. Um, you, you got to get out. Teva. I'm trying to find it. It's chapter um, 8, verse 16. I always like to highlight that moment, which is you know, why would he need to be told to exit? Verse 16. Um, and, and here I feel that there is such a tendency in the face of calamity to not have to deal with it and to. Um, to find the shelter within the ark. That's all there is, is the ark. And, and, you know, there is a moment where the story can end right there. He can say, no, I'm, I'm, I'm staying in. So I think it's worth imagining the world that Noah sees from the ark. Yeah. At the end of the flood, the water is away. It's totally lifeless. Right. All life has been destroyed. The only life is on the boat. Yeah. It takes, I think, tremendous strength and encouragement to be able to step forth into that world and say we're going to rebuild. Well, I think I think it is encouragement. I think there is a moment of paralysis that Noah experiences where he therefore needs to be told you need to you need to go out now. I, I'm relying on you now to lead us into the world. And then when the next thing that happens is. Uh, he builds a, an altar, and he makes a sacrifice from every one of the animals, the pure animals. He offered burnt offerings. You know, we're hearkening uh, before, before, before you get but, to the sac- sacrifice for a second, uh, I, we observed this before we came on this show. You you quoted us the verse, come out of the ark, you and your wife. And your children and the children's wives, and then we get vayetze Noach uvanav, ishto unashevanav. They come out male only and then female only, and it really reinforces the reluctance that you alluded to of Noach. It, it's it's like the uh, God says, okay, guys, pru orvu again. You need to fill up the earth with life, and they come off in single gender units. Uh, seemingly resistant, seemingly celibate, uh, or resistant to take on the the prospect of refilling the world with animal life. Obviously, by the way, there's there's plant life because there's a olive tree, but there's also fish life. There's a midrash that says, you know, the, the God destroys all the existence on the earth. The fish, 
The fish, the fish thought this was the the flood was the best thing ever. God is so good. God is the best. God graced us with so much flood. <laughs> so uh, what I would add here is we don't often think of the emotional life of Noah. Yes. And I assume, based on your comment, Jeremy, that what confronts Noah at this critical moment is great despair. Yes. And his going forth is a kind of triumph over despair. And I don't imagine him stepping forth joyously or jubilantly, but with a heavy heart, because this world that he once knew is gone. Well, what is the significance of the olot, of the sacrifices that he makes, the burnt offerings? How would you interpret? I mean, it's a, it's a real riddle, or, or maybe not. Maybe it's, maybe it's simply the, the gesture of, of surrender, of connection. Of, of Well, it's not enough to walk with God. You have to connect in some other way as well. Right. Well, so now God is responding to him. And, then, and of course, the, the oath that God takes uh, after Vayarachs, God, you know, inhales the, as it were, the pleasing odor. And then says, Lo osif I will no longer curse the doom the earth because of man, since the devisings of man's mind are evil from his youth. Um, God accepts a certain reality about human existence. I'm never going to destroy every living being. And then, beautifully, so long as the earth endures sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, so not sin. So, so the, the olah, or the olot, the sacrifices, elicit a reaction from God that is a covenant. It is, it is a promise. Go ahead. Promise. So reacting to that and, and to the despair, the emotional life, I, I, we need to explore for a couple of moments, you know, what happens afterwards. Let's, we'll fast forward to... The, you know, the, the scene where Noah plants a vineyard. Vayachel Noach ish ha'adama vayitakaram. This is chapter 9, verse 20. This is after the, the rainbow, after the blessings, after uh, a few laws. We have uh, this very troubling, complicated scene where Noah plants a vineyard, drinks the wine, gets drunk, uh, uncovers himself in his tent. And then Ham, the father of Canaan, sees his father's nakedness and told his brothers outside. Shem and Japheth took a cloth, placed it against their backs. Walking backward, they covered their father's nakedness. So this is a, a, a very complicated moment. Uh, any way of prying it open for us or, or, or trying to explain it or maybe using the lens of the survivor to, to really understand it. I want to ask you, Barry, you want to give some um, life of Noah here? Yeah, I think that uh, this is a big failure for Noah because in effect, he regresses to an infant by being uncovered, his nakedness being uncovered. I associate it with, with little kids and he had an opportunity to act as an adult in the world and he didn't. And you know, one of my favorite comments, as I mentioned before, is on this verse, that he drank from the wine and became drunk. And this 
I guess apparently it's a Sfad Emet who noticed that the Yayan is with the definite article, the Heya Yediyah, because he drank from the same wine and in the same measure that he had been used to drinking. And he didn't take into account that the entire world had changed. And living in a world of such destruction, one's powers are diminished. And one cannot do what one did before. And Noah was oblivious to it. And there is a certain amount of obliviousness, I suppose, to Noah, which you had mentioned earlier. But, um, you know, it's a reality that we have to, uh, to recognize. There, I don't want to go on this tangent, but, but I, I would almost um, take, take small issue with, with the infancy idea, because it seems to me that there's, there's just more allusion to sexuality here on some level. Uh, but, but we're running out of time, so we can't yeah, but get- I think that's quite true. I, I, but I, think, I think it's quite true in, in a couple of ways. I mean, I think that, uh, that, that Noah is portrayed as a scarred PTSD kind of person in this drunkenness episode. Yeah. That he's 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 come out of there and he's he's got to he's got to get drunk, um, but it's it's clear you know there's there's a gemara which is like it it's it's not a pretty one. Um, there Rav Shmuel, one of them says that Ham castrated his father and one of them says he molested well, raped him. Yeah. So so either way. Um, uh, the whether the image of sexual violence or of castration, particularly castration, Ham is portrayed then as somebody who says, "We are not going back to life. We are re- returning to death." Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, I think I think trauma uh, sometimes produces people who pursue a death cult as opposed right. to the other piece of this is it's not just the sexuality; it's the whole issue of regeneration and procreation as well. Yeah. That um, it's not, you know, pleasure sex or violent sex, but this is wrapped up, I think, in this idea that the world has to be repopulated and people don't know what they want to do. So briefly then, in the, in the subsequent chapter, we get what we call the Table of Nations, chapter 10, which tells us that, that all of humanity descends from Noah, the Shem descendants, the Ham descendants, the Yafet descendants, Shem being the uh, Mesopotamian Yafet being the European and Ham being the African. And so all of that is, is related to, in, the, in this chapter, uh, my late teacher, Avraham Malamat, said, it is the Bible projecting the idea of the family onto the global canvas. It's a lovely way of saying how the biblical idea of family um, really is the transcendent idea here of, of, of biblical ideas. Um, and then, of course, we get into the Tower of Baal, which we, we just don't have time to talk about. But uh, want to leave us with a parting word, maybe. Jeremy, I see you want to go. I, I do, I do, because in, in the Table of Nations is my favorite name in the entire biblical canon. There's a character in the Table of Nations known as Chatzar Mavet, yes. the courtyard of death. I'm totally sorry that I did not name one of my children Chatzar Mavet. That would have I'm been sure they're sorry the too. Best. Chatzar Mavit, interesting hey. name. It's biblical. <laughs> so I would add one word. Um, my late teacher, Rabbi Byron Sherwin, wrote an article once um, entitled something like Portrait of God as a Young Artist. And he talked of the flood as being the first genocide. 
And the Tower of Babel was a response to an unreliable God, that God can no longer be trusted. And so people felt they had to do battle with him. Now, it's misguided, obviously, but it's a, a real emotion. And I think one that we can recognize in the world that we live in today, that we feel real pain and real loss, and we don't always know how to express ourselves well. Well, that is a wonderful way to, to conclude with uh, our Parsha. We start with greatness, the idea of greatness, the, you know, what it means, how it transcends, and how it uh, lives in our own lives. And also, I, I think, looking forward, looking at you know, the, the way that uh, the world has to unfold from this moment. And so that we'll get to that uh, as the, the story unfolds next week with Abraham and the story of Abraham as we emerge into the Jewish story. So we want to wish everyone a beautiful Shabbat. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Parsha Talk and send us your emails. ParshaTalk at gmail.com. Shabbat Shalom.